I see it as this update of collective intelligence. I think that by sharing your story, by sharing your experience, it's a different form of, of education and insight that uh, most people don't always get to get. Hey everyone, I'm Jeremy Abbott, designer and passenger on Spaceship Earth. Today, I sit down with Mark Buckley, a climate activist and one of the very first speakers to be trained by Al Gore. He's also an advocate for the SDGs, resilient futurist, member of the expert network for the World Economic Forum for Innovation, global food reformist, and sustainable futurist. In this episode, we talk about systems thinking, learning, and resilient futures. I'm sitting here with Mark Buckley. We met how, long, how many years ago? It's been a few. A I few think years. at least three. Yep. And uh, we've been at a few events together around the world, mostly in Europe. events, yeah. Europe, Italy. Mark is the one that introduced me to this idea of being an advocate for the environment, for the audience to understand what you do or what you call yourself or how you want to be seen. What do you do? What is your title? There's a German word that I love the best. It's called the Eilegende Wollmilchsau. Oh, yeah. And it's an egg-laying wool milk pig, basically. It's somebody who does everything. I really like this systems view of life and approach to things. So I, I do many different things. I'm a United Nations Sustainable Development Goal advocate. I'm also a United Nations Resilient Futurist because I'm working on what they call the Resilience Frontiers. It's the the roadmap and vision using foresight modeling and backcasting and dynamic modeling to build the roadmap from 2030 to 2050, what happens after the sustainable development goals after 2030. And then I'm a global food reformist and activist, and, and I was one of the first 50 people trained as by Al Gore as a, a climate speaker in his ranch in Carthage, Tennessee. So I do a lot, a lot of different things that come from long history of entrepreneurs and business owners and organic farmers and, and have, have just constantly every day getting up and being busy doing as much as I can to, to make an impact in this world. Excellent. So let's take a step back. And you mentioned that you, you grew up kind of in this world of organic farming. How did you get to where you are now? I read, and we've talked about it before, that you're part German. Yeah, my mother was German. My grandmother was from Innsbruck, from Austria. My grandfather was German. You've been to Germany before? Just as a little baby, I started coming to Germany and, and uh, really right from the beginning felt like a global citizen. I mean, my <clears throat> my mother brought me here as a little baby and we went to Italy and to Spain and to Austria and, and to Germany. And this whole world just began to open up just as a little baby, just to see my relatives and, and her family. And then it just uh, spread over the years as I grew up. The world was already small for me. And where did you grow up in the U.S.? East Hampton, New York, and then also in the Midwest and in uh, Salt Lake City, Utah, and in California, and Sausalito, and in Idaho, uh, kind of moved around in different areas. So. Pretty much everywhere, wow. You mentioned your mother, but I also you have a quote from your father, treat others as you would like to be treated. Can you talk a little bit about that? The golden that? rule. Yeah, yeah, the golden rule. Exactly. So there's this uh, golden rule is basically treat people how you would like to be treated. And the new emerging golden rule for the last five, six years is really treat people and planet how you would like to be treated. So it's not just other people, but 
we see each other as more uh, this homo symbiosis, this symbiotic earth that we're not at the top of the chain or pyramid of our planet, but we're very integrated in the ecosystem of our world. And that is really the golden rule. I learned it at a young age from my father. And we used to go camping and do a lot of things in, in nature and the outdoors. And he'd always say, you know, leave it better than you found it. You know, pack your trash out and and do things. And so I, I was really blessed to, to see those things at, at a young age. There's one thing that I'd like to interject, if you don't mind. See, you, yeah. you started out about the education in this podcast. And so for me, that's a really vital thing. That's why I'm an advocate. And I talk about the SDGs and, and many other things. But I see it as this update of collective intelligence. I think mm-hmm. that by sharing your story, by sharing your experience, it's a different form of of education and insight that most people don't always get to get or receive. And when we share that, it actually benefits us all because it's a, it's a, like a, an update of collective intelligence. The more we have that information and find out how other people's stories and have advanced and grown and learned and, and their journeys, then we can also update our collective intelligence as humanity to progress. I'm big on emerging technologies and things. And what I, I kind of believe is, is, is lacking is this real-time update of collective intelligence in our world that we're not repeating some of the same mistakes that they made 200 years ago or 300 years ago that were, you know, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and over again, hoping for different results. And I really think it's a lack of this collective intelligence. We have too much fake news and muddled information out there that it's nice to to get that information that's vital for us to grow and not repeat the same mistakes as others. That's some things that we don't get in school anymore, you know? Yeah. I mean, I totally agree with you. I, I think what's interesting is since we both kind of are in the circle of not just technology, but people that are doing things to me, it seems like the premise of the internet was this idea of collective intelligence and totally it's, agree. it's going the direction of what you said, where the information is being manipulated to the value of companies big tech. So I think that's a big topic now is that even though we have the ability to pretty much through our phones and whatever else it might be to find the information, it's hard to suss out what's real and what's not, this idea of fake news. And then it's becoming a a case where the internet, where it's supposed to be kind of like the well, like information for everybody free. And now it's become very corporate, has a corporate point of view, you know, it's really about the clicks and the money and how much money can you make. There's so many groups that get left out when just one group is building things for a very singular focus group. I I totally agree. So so a lot of the information and vital voices get drowned out in unimportant things or in other things. And those people who have vital information, it's just getting harder to find it because it's not just the information overload, but it's some people don't find like they can have their voice. They don't know how to broadcast or get it out there. There's a lot of people out there who really have wonderful views and ideas and experiences, these learned stories, and you never hear about them yet. I, I really try to filter my life up to not see the fake news and the, the information overload that is specifically what I'm searching for and looking for to build up my collective intelligence personally in the right way. That's why I love the the premise of your podcast. This is fabulous. There's many things we can touch upon, but I think this idea of 
sharing and, and bringing to light what's truth and not just accessing information, but also having that become an action. Since you travel quite a bit, you're well-traveled. Are there any certain areas or people or mindsets that you find are more receptive to change, to making things more in what you think of this, the, the golden rule? Is there any community or country or, or person that you think, wow, this is something we can learn from? Actually, I do tons and tons of events and, and these meetings. And, and what I'm realizing is that usually the people that are there, they're interested. They're already on a path or a journey. Mm -hmm. So uh, in some respects, when I speak to them, it's almost like I'm preaching to the choir because most of them are on that wavelength anywhere. They've made an investment to, to go to the event and they're taking out time. And so they're also looking for that information. So it's a pretty positive vibe overall. I just finished out the COP25 in Madrid. It was supposed to be in Santiago, Chile, and then because of social and political unrest, they, for safety reasons, they moved it to Madrid. And, and it turned out to be really long days and draining and disappointment because at the end, they didn't really achieve anything after two weeks of negotiations and debate. But the majority of those type of events, people are aligned. They're looking, they're seeking more knowledge. They're, they want to hear things. And luckily, I've been fortunate enough to present at a lot of those events and people then come up, wow, I've never heard that before. I've never seen it in that light. I've never heard the sustainable development goals described like that or even our planet or climate change in, in those ways. And, and it's because I, as I started out, I take this systems view or approach to life. And it's basically about embracing complexity and systems thinking, critical thinking, and understanding that it's just not one facet that that solves our global grand challenges, but a very complex system that solves global grand challenges and progresses us in our evolution as humanity. Let's unpack that a little bit, because I think we were at an event recently in Copenhagen, and someone mentioned if everyone just became vegetarians, we wouldn't have to worry about the global warming challenge that's ahead of us. What are some other myths that you find? That is a huge myth. And yeah, I've, I hear that a lot. And there's a lot of, believe it or not, there's a lot of extremists in, in climate change and in, even in food tribes, you know, veganism and flexitarian and, and paleo or whatever. I believe that is one facet for the toolbox or one tool in a big toolbox of systems that we need to embrace. As humans, we really think linear and lateral. We kind of think in silos and we try to take these one facets or one part of a system and say, okay, if we address that, it's going to solve the problem. Well, being vegetarian or going vegan, that is one tool in the toolbox and it has an impact but it doesn't solve the climate crisis. It doesn't solve our greenhouse gas emissions, our global warming. The food systems are so complex and intertwined with logistics and packaging and shelf life and how we produce. And really, the biggest breakdown, the lowest common denominator to, to pretty much everything is that it's not the brands of the future, the food tribes of the future, the products, whether it's an electric vehicle or a new type of a renewable energy or battery that will solve our global grand challenges of the, the future. It's really about how we produce that will solve those 
problems in the future is that we address everything as a complete system and we do it in a clean tech, emerging technology fashion. Mm. So instead of producing food in a way that uh, hurts our planet, we do it in a way with renewable energies and battery backup and non-finite resources without pl- packaging waste and huge emi- greenhouse gas emissions and and not only in the production, but in the transport and and that we stop food waste altogether, that we, we really learn that uh, one of the biggest facets within the food system is food waste, that everything that they produce, 30% of it is wasted and thrown away doesn't even make it to a plate, but people don't understand that 30% waste is not 30%. It's much worse. It's an exponential problem that really comes back to bite us in the ass and the way that people don't understand it is that not only do the initial finite resources the energy the transport the marketing the labor the logistics and everything that goes into that initial way to produce it get wasted but then when we throw it away there's three main ways we get rid of food waste and the first way is to bury it with dirt in a landfill somewhere the second is to burn it And the third way is to throw it in our oceans. Well, the first way comes back to bite us in the ass worse because when we bury something, it aggregates, it ferments, and it turns into methane, whether it's in packaging or not. And methane is a greenhouse gas. It's uh, 70 times more effective at trapping heat than CO2, uh, carbon dioxide. And it's now an exponential 70x problem that we've created on a planet of finite resources that we don't even have that. And so I've just went in and described a complex system and and understanding of something of one aspect in a complex food system that most people don't even realize. And so it's, we, we need to get out of these siloads and this linear way of solving problems and really embrace complexity and system thinking and how we can, Mm understand it better and that's the way we solve global grand challenges in 2018 the entire world's international organizations world trade organization world economic forum the united nations world bank they all switched to dynamic modeling and systems thinking approach to solving our grand challenges they realized that there's this uh, siloed and linear approach isn't working and so they all added dynamic modeling and transitional maps and transformational maps to their websites and and you're seeing it all over you cannot look anywhere and realize that it's all connected in in a systems approach to solving these challenges and that's probably in in 2018 the biggest thing that i ever saw in January come out with an international organization to look at things. So this whole idea, measuring and and making visible and quantifying the data, that's super important. I find though in a lot of organizations, they're still quite siloed in the way they do things. Can that also be addressed, this idea of systems thinking? How do you address an organization that is very siloed and very about their own piece of the pie, so to speak? Well, I think that's why a lot of these entrepreneurs and small, medium enterprises and startups are really disrupting larger businesses. It doesn't make sense in the purest sense of it because an organization, an organism is a system. It's a complex system of human resources and finance and operations, you know, 
all the systems of an organization that make that business function and cooperate. So that's a system in and of itself. And if you were to only focus in your organization, your company, just on HR or just on operations, well, there's all sorts of other facets, these siloed parts of the big system that would fail and eventually your company um, kind of atrophies and stagnates and then you're not growing. And, and the, these big organizations really, that's where they struggle is to get everybody to operate and function as an organism in mm. <laughs> an organization, as yeah. a system, yeah. that all parts are moving at the same time and working on the same purpose and objective vision and why for the company to keep it going and, and the larger your organism gets the the bigger uh, the harder it is basically to keep that going that's why I saw these younger startups and entrepreneurs are so agile and disruptive because it's not as hard to to keep all the parts moving the the plates spinning at the same time so to say the Man. cogs moving yeah that, does that kind of answer your question? Yeah, a definitely. Bit? It also brings another question to, to mind is you work a lot with the UN, United Nations. I do. And yeah. that's also a, how many people work oh there? Oh my God, it's unbelievable. It's a huge organization, right? <laughs> yeah, it's, well, it's an international organization and has the head offices in New York. That's where the General Assembly is and that's where Antonio Guterres, UN Secretary General is. But then in Europe is the Bonn office, the the United Nations here in Bonn, and that's where the UNFCCC, which is the UN Framework for Climate Change uh, Convention or Conferences, basically, it sits that holds the climate change conferences. And then there's Geneva. And then that's just the UN umbrella. Now there's interagencies within the United Nations, some that you may have heard of, you know, UNESCO, UNDP, the UNTIL is a, a new UN organization, United Nations Technology Innovation Labs, basically. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's hundreds of different UN interagencies and organizations, FAO and World Food Program and so on. And they're all kind of competing against each other. They're all got this voice and it's really big, antiquated organization. What most people don't understand is that it's a spot, it's a place to bring country delegations, countries together and NGOs and foundations together to solve our global grand challenges, our world's problems, not only humanitarian issues, but climate issues and human rights issues in one place. And so it's like a big event or a place with a seat at the table where they can come and sit down and they can debate. And it's a framework where they say, okay, here we give you all a seat at this table and we're going to make sure we use Robert's rules of orders to make sure everybody's nice and correct with each other. And we're going to to agree, try to agree or come to agreements with a plan and a framework and a roadmap for the future to solve our, our problems. And then like this COP25 in Madrid, as we had the United States and Saudi Arabia and Kuwait and Brazil and uh, kind of muddling the discussions and, mm -hmm. and not wanting to come to agreement and being slow to that. And it just delays the entire process. And so it's not like the UN can speak for everybody and collect money for everybody, but it's a, a framework. Mm -hmm. It's like a, an event place. And so it's organization and it's actually a, a framework that 
in my opinion now, and uh, seems like it's failing us. It's yeah. really not up to speed with uh, our emerging, exponentially growing world, and the yeah. decisions are so slow that it's really having huge consequences on how we act and yeah. move forward. What's interesting is the UN has been around for you know X amount of years, yeah. decades, right? I guess, yeah. Yeah. and then. To be honest, if you think about the SDGs or just global climate change in general, right? I think my argument has been at pretty much up to this point, people don't really care because it doesn't have a, a direct impact on me on my day to day. You know, if if I'm whatever, you know, I'm gonna if I'm at a restaurant and they're gonna make steak, I'm gonna order a steak. I'm gonna drive my uh, gas guzzling Porsche or whatever vehicle it might be, uh, gas guzzling vehicle or wherever, and I don't really care. So the, the data and the, this impact hasn't really affected me personally. But if you compare it to what the UN has been doing, and maybe because I'm outside the loop, versus what I see as uh, the newest story emerging, the newest narrative, which is uh, Greta from, yeah. from Sweden, it's just, uh, has, it feels like it has more impact. Even though I don't know the, the effect of her action is, but she's definitely created more awareness for the movement, I would say. She's created a huge awareness, definite, definitely. I don't, I don't think that she's the solution, but I think she's a great advocate and a very innocent new voice to, to the table that has moved a lot of people, whether it's 7.5 million or 11 million. But I think as Time names her the person of the year for 2019, she's definitely had a big impact in, in people's lives and especially in the youth. It's a complex thing in and of itself. Is I believe that the reason that she's listened to so much is because she has this form of innocence. So I mentioned I was trained by Al Gore as a climate speaker. Al Gore has been speaking about climate and, and these things forever. And I've been speaking about it for a long time. Why don't people look at us or Al Gore kind of like Greta and the impact seems a little bit different? Well, I I don't think we have that innocence. And so when people look at Al Gore or me, they say like, oh, there's, he's a Democrat or a politician or a businessman or what's this bearded Mark speaking about climate? I've never heard of him. I don't have that innocence. And there's this human skepticism almost or, or, or image, why should I listen to him? Or who is he to tell me better? And great as is, She's not only a youth, but she's innocent. She also has Asperger's to very open about speaking about it. And so, one, she's the youth that we kind of need to be protecting in our world. And whether she has all the facts or not, she's just kind of saying, it doesn't make sense that uh, I'm going to school to learn all the things you're teaching us uh, about climate change or about the world when you're not even listening in politics, you know, it doesn't make sense. There's not going to be a future here. Why do I need to go? Because you're not even listening to us. So you're just basically giving me a new civilization model or a history lesson that you're saying doesn't really matter in the first place because you're not listening to it at all. And so she's trying to spark, what are you doing about our future and why aren't we panicking or why aren't we taking some more actions? And so I like that voice and that innocence, but I also believe that that why it's so successful is it's not only an emerging in our time and the world's a lot smarter or smaller and, and we have social media and, and technology that gets messages around the world in seconds, making our world a lot smaller. 
but I want you to know that this has happened before. So in 1992, Severin Suzuki, I think she was 12 years old at the time, spoke in front of the UN. This was kind of like the Rio conference, which was like one of the first cops, and gave a similar talk to what Greta has done back then and was very harsh and very powerful and very impactful and a voice of the youth with that innocence. And uh, back then, I think she had a huge impact. But social media and technology and things didn't spread that. And she's now, I think she's 42 years old, and she's still active, and she's part of an indigenous tribe in Canada and still very active in climate change. And her father is also very active, type of um, activist, environmentalist, uh, conservationist. Mm -hmm. And so she's still been going strong. And then here in Germany, there was a nine-year-old Felix Finkbeiner Mm -hmm. who started speaking, also gave a talk in front of the United Nations and started a foundation called Plant for the Planet. His main motto was stop talking, start planning. And he'd take these pictures where he'd put his hand over the politician's or the bureaucrat's mouth and say, stop talking, start planning. And it was plant a tree for the planet. And and that's his foundation. And he has since planted 1.3 trillion trees. He's activated 82,000 climate leaders, trained them how to give presentations on climate change who are youth, and has built a huge organization and made a huge impact. I mean, 1.3 trillion trees. And then he started a fair trade chocolate bar company uh, that for every chocolate bar sold, a tree would be planted, but also the, the fair wage and the fair trade of this chocolate and, and, and things would be, and the packaging and the way it was designed was a very responsible type of a company. Mm. And just through that chocolate bar initiative, I think it's 1.5 million trees have already been planted yeah. and sold. And so, and he's written a couple books and yeah. just some, some huge things. But if you were to ask people today or even the youth of today, yeah. and that goes back to this education point, yeah. this collective intelligence, yeah. the majority of people who aren't in those circles, who haven't been having this narrative of climate change, they wouldn't know who those people were or what they did. They've had some very impactful things as well. You yeah. know, I mean, Al Gore's been doing this for a long time and he's trained to date something just over 20,000 climate leaders. Right. And uh, he's written numerous books and he's done live broadcasts and has two movies, you know, The Inconvenient mm-hmm. Truth and The Inconvenient Sequel. But still, I think in a short amount of time, Greta has surpassed him. I think Felix Finkbeiner has surpassed him. And I think it's because of that innocence. And I yeah. think it's because he's a businessman and, and it's a different kind of impact. And maybe he educated them in some respects because he was a front runner and spoke about it. Maybe he inspired them to to do it. But uh, I think there's a huge difference of that journey that's happened there. I mean, maybe that's a side tangent, but just a little information and note that, you know, this isn't anything new. We've had people speak about it, but maybe it's emerging that this is the time and place in our world that we need to hear these messages mixed with technology. We get the information faster and say, yeah, that's something we should look into or make sense. I think also, I think with Greta, you know, obviously just the the narrative her story has been amazing but also i think that like i was saying the the personal impact on on climate change is becoming more felt if you look at the fires 
You look at the floods, you look at uh, the hurricanes, they're happening more frequently. People say the planet is just warming by itself. It does that. But there is some kind of correlation between greatest message and your message and then actual reality that you cannot deny. Stuff is changing. Some people can say, okay, it's, it, it's just the way it is. That's, you know, that's just the way it is. Our planet is warming. Let's say you're in California in Silicon Valley and your house is potentially going to burn down because of a fire that usually never happens but every 10 years, then you have to see that, okay, something is changing. Whether you say it's global warming or not, it doesn't matter. I mean, the fact of the matter is things are more extreme, I would say. Yeah, I don't think it's about a debate or that climate change does exist or that the science is there. We're definitely in the the new epoch or the era of the Anthropocene, for sure humans' impact on our climate is absolutely for real. But regardless of that, I mean, what, the burning question that I always ask is basically WTF. And most people think, oh, you know, he's going to say the F word, and that's not the word I'm going to say. It's what's the future? Yeah. The road and the path that we are on, what is the future that we're going in? So on, on a planet of finite resources. If you look for, at our planet from outer space, the blue marble, uh, I will say it's not the World Bank that you know of, but that is our World Bank, that, right. that blue marble. that All the resources, everything we can create and produce comes off of this, our home, this one planet. And so that, that is our World Bank. And we're using more resources per year then it's replicable. So this year in July 29th was Earth Overshoot Day, the day we went beyond our finite resources. And every day since, we've been in a deficit. And we're, we're using a replicable resource this year for, for humanity as 1.6 global hectares per person. That means that if we each had that, we uh, 1.6 global hectares, we could live a long, replicable life, enough security, food, water, and resources to live a ripe old age. But per person today, we're using 2.87 something uh, global hectares per person, which is a deficit. It's, it's a deficit. It's a resource overshoot. Yeah. More resources than we actually can regenerate on our planet. And so the burning question is what's the future? Where are we going to be in the future if we don't have any more resources to not just produce food, but electric cars or smartphones or whatever else? You know, where's our business model? Where's our operating model going or taking us? Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Do you see that we're kind of, as humanity, is that just the way things are? We're very self-aware, but also not very self-aware and very inside looking. Where do you see the future there? What do you think? What do you well, think? I ask the question a lot. What does a world that works for everyone look like for you? And and most people have never been asked that question or never even thought about it. They don't think about what the future is or they don't know how to answer it. And if if you do ask them, it's like they're thinking when you ask them, and then the, the answer changes depending on the environment or as things develop. And it's more about the question, the introspect. Where is this journey that not only you as an individual, but as as a global citizen or as a world, where's that taking us? Where's that business model or that plan or roadmap of our life? Where's that taking us? Are we going to be around in the future? Is it going to be a dystopian future? And, and so I really think that, that that's something that we really need to look at. But I believe we're at a point in time 
that the civilization model, the framework that we currently have, is coming to an end. And, and we need a transition and we need to keep it afloat. With, and that's where the sustainable development goals, in my mind, are a nice transition to help us transition into a new framework or a new civilization model to keep this current one afloat and start to repair it to a point where we can make a transition to something that works better for all humanity that is a real new civilization framework. And it's kind of more this symbiotic earth that we realize that we not only need to not see ourselves in competition or the survival of the fittest at the top of the food chain and our ego instead of more integrated in the ecosystem of our world and our planet and that it's a global thing that what happens in China can affect us in America and what happens in America can affect us in Germany and we breathe the same air, we use the same resources. Eventually there is no place on this planet to hide from climate change and the future path we're going on. So we have to really get a new model and framework and we need a lot more people to realize that we need to come together and see things a little bit different, a paradigm shift in, in our operating system. Which reminds me of the beginning of our conversation, you know, the quote from your dad, treat others as you would like to be treated. Because to your question, it really is about that. It's not just about me, and it's not just about my friends and family, but it's about everybody. And I think that's where, in the design world where I come from, for me, it's not just about human-centered, it's humanity-centered. It's really understanding what is good for humanity and not just for the humans. That's absolutely sure. That's the truth. We're... We need to save humanity. It's about, uh, a lot of people see the sustainable development goals as these bright, shiny, colored mm. things, and they don't know how it relates to them. But real simple, it's, it's your insurance plan. It's humanity's insurance plan that by 2030, that we can have a nice place to live on this planet. It's not about business or becoming richer or being the best nation. It's about survival of humanity in a way where we're not running around in 2030 or later with oxygen masks and spacesuits to survive here on our planet, but that we have a place that's got enough resources and enough things for us to enjoy. It's a real people, planet, protection, and peace plan, insurance plan for us all. So just to wrap it up, what's the one thing that you've learned over the years that you still think about and still use? Embracing complexity, and that's how I started out, the systems view of life. We really need to embrace complexity and see us as an integral part of a symbiotic earth of everything in our world. Whether we like other people or not, we're closely tied to them and the other species and organisms here on our planet. Once we embrace that complexity and understand our part in the big picture of things, it's a lot easier to make these omni-win-win choices if you're thinking of game theory concepts that are good for not only yourself but for all humanity it might not be the choice you want to make but it's the it's the right choice for everybody the kind of the new operating system that we need to have and and that goes back to that the golden rule treat people and planet how you would like to be treated yeah it sounds so easy doesn't it (laughs) it sure does Thanks, Mark. If people want to find out more about you or read more about you, where can they look to you? You can type into Google Mark Buckley, and there's tons of things that will come up, I'm sure. But I have a website. It's uh, markbuckley.earth, and that's M-A-R-C-B-U-C-K-L-E-Y dot earth.
Thank you. If you want to find out more or listen to previous episodes, you can go to thelearningeconomy.net. Please also consider subscribing to the show on iTunes and do us a favor and write us a review while you are there. The show is produced by myself and the introduction music by Andrew Applepie. I'm Jeremy Abbott, and you've been listening to The Learning Economy.